Hi, and welcome to the iPhone Life podcast. I'm Donna Cleveland, Editor-in-Chief at iPhone Life. And I'm David Averbach, CEO and publisher. This week, we're doing things a little differently. We have a special guest for you, and I will cut to that interview in just a moment. But first, we wanted to tell you who our sponsor is for this episode. So today's sponsor is Fanatic, and they have an app called Informant 5. And if you haven't heard of it, I really recommend you go check it out. It's We like to say it's the calendar app that Apple should have made. And they just do a lot of things in the calendar app that make it really easy to use in a way that I personally just found Apple's built-in calendar app really tricky to use. One of the main differences is they can actually combine reminders and a calendar functionality into one app because so many times that line is really blurred of what is a reminder and what is a, uh, something you're scheduling. Um, you know, if you're like, remind me tomorrow that I have a vet appointment, is that a reminder on your phone or is it a, a calendar appointment? So that's one of those things that they combine it and they have it in a really user-friendly way. Also, this their app works not only on iPhone, iPad, and Mac, but also on PC, so you can be cross-platform and Android if you happen to have an Android. Uh, It's free to use. They do have a premium subscription, but make sure you go check it out uh, on the App Store. It's called Informant 5, or we'll link to it in the show notes at iphonelife.com slash podcast. Thanks, David. And now for our interview. Enjoy. Today, we have special guests from Black & AI, a nonprofit that is uh, promoting collaboration and um, increasing diverse voices in the field of artificial intelligence, especially uh, promoting having more black members in this air- in this space. So today we have with us Cl- Crystal Morn, and she's a PhD student at the University of Vermont and is researching provable fairness, differential privacy and machine learning. And at Black in AI, she's helping to organize events and mentoring people in the space. So welcome, Crystal. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And we also have Hassan Kane, and he is the lead data scientist at Entropy Labs. That one's a little hard to pronounce. Um, he directs machine learning efforts to improve customer support interactions there. And at Black and AI, he is the community programs lead. Welcome, Hassan. Thank you. Great to be here. Just to get us started, could you tell me a little bit about um, how you ended up working at Black and AI? So my journey started when I joined grad school in 2019. I was, so I had moved across the country and I felt fairly isolated in my first semester. And I happened to get a travel grant from NeurIPS, which is the largest AI conference in the world. And through NeurIPS, I was able to meet several individuals from Black and AI because everyone was telling me I had to go to Black and AI's um, formal event. And when I attended Black and AI's formal event at NeurIPS, it's a workshop with research and, and full of community and support. I loved it so much that I thought that I had to, it was really important to me in terms of providing support and in helping me see that there are other people like myself who were professors and are the other side of the PhD. And so I made a deliberate effort to try to help and support other persons who are like myself in graduate school, and I became involved in Black and AI that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me, um, my involvement with Black and AI go back to the first workshop in 2017. So at, at that time, I had a uh, paper that I presented at another workshop uh, at NeurIPS in 2017 and found out 
about Black Nei and Timnit Gebru uh, reached out and said that I was also able to present my work there. And when I saw the wonderful community and its people, it really made a strong impression because at that first at that first conference, they indeed took care of registration fees and created even a dinner and a community for all the black researchers from all over the world. And in college, I did a lot of community building. And so I was looking for something like that in my professional career. So it was really helpful to find such an effort because I knew uh, from early on the power of community building. So I started helping out with uh, many things like admission, social media, and now I helped with basically a lot, a lot of the programs itself that the community wants to initiate. And so that's been wonderful to be you know, in service of such a community for almost three years now. And I was wondering if either of you could jump in with an answer for this, if you could just summarize for our listeners, what is the mission of Black and AI and why, um, why it was founded? So Black and AI, in terms of its general mission, is this community or this forum for sharing ideas, fostering collaborations, and discussing initiatives to increase the presence of Black people in the field of intelligence. Our podcast listeners are all Apple enthusiasts. Um, that's, you know, they all use Apple devices and are already interacting with artificial intelligence in ways they may or may not realize. I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit, like what is artificial intelligence for people who don't know and how is it already benefiting our listeners' lives potentially? So artificial intelligence is um, a very data-centric uh, process. So it's, 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 uh, we call it intelligence because it's a form of learning. So instead of explicitly programming a, a you know a system or a, a computer system, you're taking massive amounts of data and having the computer make a program that learns from the data and produces a prediction or um, a specific or does a specific task. And the way it learns is that every time you do an iteration of learning, it corrects the correct prediction or what the intended prediction from the margin of error or how far it missed the correct answer. And so it does this over and over until it, it um, succeeds in predicting or performing the task with as small of a margin of error um, as it can. And so because of that, it's, it's, we term that intelligence because that's similar to how we might think about intelligence and how the brain works. Um, and that's kind of uh, why it's called artificial intelligence. And some of the use cases you may see already in your phone is that if you're using Siri that performs speech recognition, that's a form of artificial intelligence. If you look at your photo and you recognize that it can sort them by the, based on the people who are in, this, in the photo, that's a form of artificial intelligence too. Uh, machine translation is also a form of artificial intelligence because there is not exact rules to translate from one language to another. So if you want to, you cannot write exact rules to translate. All you can do is show a computer a lot of example of translation among pairs of language, and hopefully it will pick up the patterns. Uh, another area too is if you use a lot of applications such as YouTube or Amazon, if you buy an item, you will see that you are often recommended uh, content that's more or less relevant uh, because it learns, to, it learns from your choice and whether or not you click 
on the video which are recommended or the items which are recommended, it will further tailor it will tailor it to, to your choice. So those are already four examples of how artificial intelligence is already powering a lot of user experience. So is it artificial intelligence <laughs> that makes it, I feel like these days I'll have a conversation with a friend and then somehow ads are, are being like tailored to me <laughs> about, a con I swear it happens sometimes, even when I'm not searching things. Um, do you know anything about that? <laughs> yeah, it's funny, actually, a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of anecdotes around that. A lot of the companies have always said that they're not really doing any of that. But yeah, it's true that, like, even for me, it often happens. Uh, be it, and it, it can often even be, like, a conversation by voice that you don't, like, the device is there. And then somehow, like, two or three days later, you will, you will start popping up. So, unclear, the official statement from the company <laughs> is that they're not actively monitoring those conversations, but... I know. I wonder sometimes, but yeah, so that's, that's really interesting to let people know that things like facial recognition, um, all that already is artificial intelligence in our phones, but I know there's a lot of more like futuristic forward-looking ways that AI, like there's a lot of promise in this field. Could you walk through some of the ways kind of cool things that AI could be bringing our way in the future? Um, so one of the things, uh, and it, particularly from a person that I went to, I, I um, knew in my first semester, she's at UCLA now, but she's working on using AI for gait or walking so that um, there, AI can be used for prediction in terms of predicting when someone who's elderly, for example, is about to experience a fall and correcting for that. So I'm very intrigued by the humanistic aspects of AI because I think that uh, there's a lot of potential for AI to be used to help humans. And it's not just, I know there's kind of a generalization that they're just used to make ads and uh, make profit, but there are very collaborative and participatory applications of AI. And two more applications, or I guess two or three more applications which are exciting and in the work. There is also autonomous vehicles. Uh, it's actually a topic that I work on at Uber Advanced Technology Group where the promise there is, is in car or planes or boats that drive themselves. And it, what's often interesting is that a lot of the autonomous vehicle conversation is focused on the car aspect, but even for boats, it's applicable as well as planes. So, and actually most of the planes already are like not exactly driven by the pilots. Um, so that's like one aspect. Another one is around uh, NLP and for example, synthesizing uh, scientific literature to make evidence-based recommendations. So the dream for many researchers is, you know, there is in any, the rate at which we produce research and knowledge, uh, almost no one can keep up with it. And so if you can have systems which are able to read papers, summarize papers and recommend, given a certain intention of a user, that would really help to synthesize and personalize knowledge. And a third one is around uh, AI more in the physical world. So for scientific experiments, there are many items or say chemical reactions or material with some property that we want to design. But the typical process is you design something, you make a computation, then you iterate. But often there's a dream to have that full loop of designing materials to be completely automated where a lab setting in the lab setting, the properties can be tested. And then there is a generative model that say, you know, I want a material that is 
very light and is a very good conductor, or I want a material that's a superconductor, or all of those things. And so really blending physics knowledge with experiments to really help design material for better battery or, or things like that. That's also an upcoming use case that people are working on several pieces of. Cool. The the one of synthesizing information, it sounds like my my job as an editor could be threatened in the future by AI, huh? <laughs> More like augmented and, and synthesized. Augmented. Yeah. <laughs> no, it sounds it sounds pretty amazing. Um I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the the current landscape is in the field of AI when it comes to um, black researchers and other racial groups. How are they represented in this group? Um, I assume the the need for a, a nonprofit like Black and AI would show that there's uh, a lack of representation. So there is a lack of, rep of representation um, throughout. So not just in fields like technology or in research, um, but specifically in terms of uh, positions of power in, uh, in these companies that make AI and in terms of representation of the general population. I believe it's 13% um, are, of persons are Black in terms of the element or pop the sampling of a population, but this is not the case in certainly the black research space or the research space in general. Um, and we can do a lot better. The other issue is that there is a dearth of black faculty. There's an, and this is specifically true in tenure track positions. So what you find is that you have a high percentage of um, adjunct faculty who are, who are Black, so they don't have benefits and they don't have um, the same kind of salary as the tenure track faculty. And this is a huge problem because a lot of grad, graduate students, particularly who look like myself, um, they experience something called identity threat. So, you know, they come in with imposter syndrome and graduate school is hard. And one of the ways to, to mitigate or mediate identity threat and to make them feel like they belong and can make it through the process and support them is by, is um, research has found is by having black faculty at universities. So if there's a lack of representation, then that um, kind of perpetuates this pipeline whereby black researchers or people who want to get into the field um, to create a more inclusive design process and be involved in AI research are um, kind of stymied because they don't have that support. Yeah. And if so, you want to further break down um, the, the, the trends is that, um, I mean, to start off, that's, you know, to start off with the, you know, what Crystal mentioned, um, overall underrepresentation in, in many aspects. And the trend is that, for example, the community grew from around, you know, few dozens of people to now uh, 1,800 people identifying as black who are either taking more than two machine learning class or work on substantial project and are now entering the field and the black AI community provides then a space for these people to relate to one another and socialize and, and feel like there's a place for them to shape the research question. And if we also take another look at some of the researchers on the African continent, some of the obstacle uh, have historically been, for example, the ability to participate in international conference via travel. So there were like a few years ago, there was a big scandal 
actually two years in a row, there was big scandals where one of the big things that Black AI has done actually has been for, say, researchers who are based abroad, uh, actually Black AI, if you get a paper at this conference, Black AI will actually pay for your tickets and the hotel registration fees, uh, which is a huge, uh, you know, you, you can imagine it's a, it's a huge deal if you are researchers in a developing country, now being able to network with, with like-minded people in the field and be able to actually learn what are the latest ideas, latest conversation. And so Black Knight actually has taken steps to pay for the hotel and ticket for those who are to attend those conference. But despite that, there were actually something like, I, I believe a third of the visa were rejected, actually. Um, they, for, so say for those who are coming from, uh, say, Nigeria, Tanzania, South Africa, Trinidad, Brazil, like there were actually uh, visa that were rejected, uh, even though the people had their papers accepted at the conference. And so that has been like one example of obstacle, wow. because, because of course, like in the, in the research community, like it's really important to be attuned to what is the latest conversation, because that's what is present in the latest conversation that would drive the research agenda for the next year or two. And so even if you have the, the, the ability, if you're not aware of the latest conversation, you don't go into in these in-person meetings, the relevance of the work can be, can be hard. So like Black Nair has really helped to tackle some of those, uh, some of those obstacles. And the numbers are improving now, I would say from like a couple dozen people to like 1800. Another example is actually, uh, there's a, a platform called Zindi Africa. That's basically, they do a data science platform, uh, a data science competition platform for specifically targeted towards research on the African continent. And they have reached 20,000 users uh, in over like a year, like they were funded in May, 2018. And so they had like reached like, you know, 20,000 users in over a year and a half because people are really seeing that the opportunities are there and the problems are relevant to them. And so they are really tapping into their time to, uh, self team self teach themselves a lot and so like as as a person uh, like Kirsten and I work on admission so we really see this amount of talent that's often self taught or uh, you know I've taken a lot of Coursera classes online and they are looking for other people to that may not be in their city to to relate to and so we have so many stories like that we can you know literally spend the entire afternoon talking about someone that may have studied mechanical engineering at some point. They work a job, then they take five, six Coursera classes, and then what's next, right? If you are someone in, in, in a community where there's not much activity happening, that could be a barrier. But now that there is a community like Black and I, they can actually join the forum, introduce themselves, initiate collaboration. And that has been really powerful in empowering that, um, you know, acceleration of uh, the presence. That's very cool. Yeah, you mentioned somewhere in there something about a group of 1800 researchers. Is that is that the membership number for Black and AI? Or it's so yeah, we we around the 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 membership number is around that, but I'll actually that just include the black people. We also have allies on on our forum and so the or like allies identify as say faculty members at other university, young professional want to help. And that number, when you add allies around that, like 2,700 plus, yeah. And um, Crystal, you'd mentioned before too, you know, 13% being the general U.S. population of, you know, Black people, but that 
the numbers in AI were a lot lower. Do you know what they are? Happen to know what they are? Um, or I, I it's believe, okay. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. The only thing I, I remember is the statistic of um, that Reddit made, which was that in 2019, um, when she received her PhD, or was it 2018? She was one of so only 11 persons received their black uh, persons received their PhDs in the U.S. And there only and only four of them were female. And she knew all four of the women who had received their PhDs in the U.S. and identified as black. So I mean, it's really pitiful. The numbers are. Um, we could do a lot better. And part of that, as uh, Hassan was talking about, it has to do with, with mentorship. Um, and I think that Black and AI is a great space to connect persons together so that we can have better opportunities for mentorship, um, which leads to success and um, you know, increasing or having a, a more representation within faculty and an industry of researchers working in AI. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so far I'm hearing a lot of just in terms of fairness and like equal opportunity and feeling like this is something I can do too. um, This mentorship is so important, but then there's also the whole other side of it that artificial intelligence um, can have bias within it and can be harmful in that way. If there's lack of representation, could you talk about that? What are some of the, um, what's some of the harm in that? When, uh, the, 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 the people who are in the room and decide the project have a huge influence on, on the project outcomes because they, that includes the awareness of the assumption that power the data that has been gathered, the use case and its impact on, on different communities. Because if people often go with a mindset of move fast, break things, and will iterate over time, uh, it doesn't always lead to thoughtful development as far as what are the implications on what are the real life implications of break things or things that break when they become elements of critical decision making. And one of the most prominent example that has been shown by members of the community, you know, including I mean, Tim Nate, Joy and Debs and many other who work in fairness has been that, for example, uh, facial recognition algorithm actually are not as good at recognizing um, both the gender and often even the person uh, based on the skin color. And that's often due to how the, 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 the data sets which are gathered and, and, and the way the, 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 the applications are designed to be tested. But more importantly, uh, they, I think they, they, they were like a lot of other examples that show that they m- were able to match uh, pictures of like congressmen, uh, black people from the Congress. They, 40% of them match with mugshots, which are not the people who were, you know, I mean, just matching them with any random mugshot. So if you imagine a predictive policing use case where someone is now locked out of a store because his face has been match with a mugshot, whereas it may not be him or her, like you could see how it can lead to a lot of problems. But that's, those are actually some of the most visible examples. There can be other ones. And, and part of it is that it's in the way that 
you know, and, and so actually another example of that was uh, there, there was Amazon that made a, almost like a resume ranking uh, system and it learned over time to actually uh, like discriminate against women. And part of it is because if you look at the current setup and the current representation and if you say, oh, learn from that, then you will learn to um, like, you will learn the, the current setup versus maybe you would not want to learn from that and you would want to say, oh, we want to actually take up, if we want, if we mean we want to be able to consider applicants from different background, by definition, they'll be underrepresented in your data set. And so they, uh, they actually immediately suspended it. And so those are examples where in some case you maybe want to reinforce the trend, but in some other case, you actually don't want to reinforce the trend, especially if you say we want to consider uh, applicants uh, which are, are not like the one that we have in-house. So it means that you have to be relatively open-minded. And if you learn from the patterns of, of, of the choice that you've made in the past, then you're going to repeat them. You know, th literally those who learn from history are, are condemned to repeat it. And the, the, third point, the third point I want to add, actually, is it's been very interesting, this, this conversation on facial recognition, because it's one of the cases where people may not necessarily want to be included. You know, like I think there, there were like great quotes on Twitter that say that don't confuse um, equity with uh, like representation, because in that case, it's actually a good thing that these uh, technology may not work. And, and, and some folks in, in the civil rights side have actually uh, taken um, the opportunity to question the wider deployment instead of saying, oh, let's develop actually that said that includes better people. I mean, that, that includes more representation so that everybody now can be face scanned. There's been actually a preference. Oh, actually, we don't want to be a face scan and be included in your data set. So it was also this very interesting conversation uh, is that, that's still ongoing. I was going to say, is that kind of speaking to, you know, if there's very accurate data being kept on everybody for like, if pe the people in power are corrupt or then that could be used against you? Is that the concern? Like, th what is the concern around having better facial recognition? So, I mean, one of them is the, and, and, and often a lot, of, a, lot of the, a lot of the community says that when the technology development happens, technology development doesn't happen at a vacuum. In, in a vacuum, it happens within an er already existing social context. And mm -hmm. in the U.S., the social context is one where there are already uh, historical issues with respect to where police is deployed and mm -hmm. which population it monitors and the tension that it has created. And so when the, the, the development of, of, of technology happens within such a context, it will further exacerbate the, the tension which are already existing between the police and some communities of color. And so in that case, a lot of the civil rights people where and, and, and wider social scientists uh, were, were, were right to uh, further question whether that's something that we want because we know that it's, you know, people may, may want to start deploying it in, in, in schools and everywhere and tracking all, all sorts of behavior. And is that the kind of society that we want, right? And, and the fact that in that case, the technology uh, wasn't mature, didn't work, allow people to have that honest conversation and say, is that the world where we want to be headed or do we want to, you know, completely change the paradigm of how we imagine the relationship 
of of police and this community being one of over scrutiny and things like that. And so I think like it, it was one of the cases where the next step wasn't just about technological improvement, but thinking about how do you want to change? And, and, and we will see that conversation being mirrored nationally, like how do you even want to change those power dynamic and relationship? Because uh, it's known that it's, it, it, those technology will be, uh, have the potential to be abused against uh, certain groups. And, and that's where the, the, the conversation has been, has been very, has been happening. Crystal, do you have anything to add to that one? That was I mean, a great answer. Yes, that was a really good answer. Um, I, I guess um, you kind of address, so there's several problems with, or several complex layers of complexities within bias. So you have the data collection process in which persons tend to, depending on who's collecting the data, um, they may have a tendency to categorize things based on their impression of the world. Um, so the encodings are an issue, and this is particularly an issue, for example, in police reports that only have genders as male or female, you know, if a person doesn't identify as male or female. Um, and uh, we also have the general modeling process. So based on the data, there's a lack of representation or a sampling bias. Um, and the issue, so this in June of this year, June 24th, um, there was a gentleman who was false. He was falsely arrested. Um, I believe that the article was in the New York Times, mm -hmm. um, and because of uh, faulty data and using things like gang databases as part of the training um, data samples, which leads to higher margins of error or even grainy surveillance video, um, because it's just a lack of representation of black persons in the data samples themselves. Um, and so that perpetuates into misclassification uh, when models are made or uh, algorithms are trained on the data. So there's that, the, the modeling aspect as well. And so it can lead to incorrect predictions, which penalize already underrepresented or marginalized individuals. So it's, it's an entire pipeline of um, issues that are compounded that lead to punitive relationships and a lack of trust between technology and algorithms and the people that they're used against or weaponized on. And yeah, and as far as the power of question goes, it's like often the, even the recourse to these, like I think like often, you know, even for example, just in the simple case of a recommendation system, you cannot really question or modify what a recommendation system suggests. You know, those systems, uh, there are like a lot of work around what people call participatory approach to machine learning, where users have the room to review the input and modify the input to, to these decision systems. And because in, in that case, the, the, because the deployment would be in a way that the person will have a hard time questioning because say the decision has already been made, of say locking him out of a store or something like that. And, and so the way that, how, how do you go and question that, right? How do you go and say, oh yeah, this system that has misidentified me, uh, now like I cannot do X, Y, Z, how do I go and question that? Who made it? And so those things were also not clear. So that's one of the questions around uh, who has power to uh, question and, and ask the information to be reviewed. So that's also another question. That, like uh, lack of transparency, basically. 
Yes. Um, one, one thing with that as well is um, I'm wondering from your point of view, like, you know, social scientists and civil rights activists are, you know, maybe having concerns about collecting this data, but it does seem like <laughs> on the other hand, having it be more accurate would have a lot of positive effects as well. Do you, do I, either of you have an opinion that you would weigh in on what you think the right course of action is forward or, <laughs> or you could pass on that if you, if, um, if you'd rather not state an opinion? <laughs> So, I mean, I can, I can start. I mean, it's as with all dual-use technology. I mean, in an ideal world, like, you want a way for people to be able to, to decide uh, what are the... Because what people are often scared is the, you know, some, some systems start and say, oh, you know, we're going to, let's say, with a service company, we're going to collect this data in that way. And then suddenly there's a backdoor, there's an integration with another service that starts to then violate the privacy and the original rule and there no, there's no room for recourse. And then suddenly uh, you have this system which are deeply integrated. So actually one, one example of that, have you, you may have heard about the Clearview AI system where what Clearview AI did was basically they scrape all online uh, photos, I mean, all social media photos from Facebook, Twitter. They made an app where you can take the picture of someone and all of the online photos of that person, whether they're in a private or public domain, will surface. Because what they did is that they actually violated the user terms of social media. And they have actually scraped that data. And they have billions and billions of photos where, like, I think there was like a journalist that investigated. And when that journalist went, the Clearview person took the app, took a picture of them, and all of their data was... I mean, all of, a lot of the photos that they didn't even know were online uh, surfaced. And That's scary. Including pictures taken by other people, right? So wow. um, in an ideal world, like you would want, say, okay, such actors that like infringe on the user terms and privacy condition to be punitive, but then it opens a, a whole kind of form because it's like, oh, wow, uh, now that you can do it, like, you know, you have a lot of people that would try to get in touch with you, replicate the data, duplicate the data, kind uh, of end up on the dark web, like all sorts of things that are really hard to control. And so I think like the, um, in an ideal world, like the, like the public and uh, officials are able to regulate these technology and prevent either legally or illegally the, I mean, by legal route or non or technical route, the abuse. Uh, but often it's, it tends to be uh, reactionary. So I would still say like, I mean, uh, I, the, the, the conversation has gotten better as far as the technology development. Um, and, and, and like it could enable a lot of like powerful use case, but then the, the, we cannot, uh, we, we have to be intentional about how to regulate and penalize the like harmful use case. Um, otherwise, I mean, one example was also deep fake, you know, where you can just make a video of someone uh, saying whatever. And so you now I can, I can take your face, I can make you say, whatever, and if they're, and then the technology is powerful and can be done, right? So how do you then, uh, either from a legal or technological standpoint, fight against that? Because we're already in the era of, of fake news and we don't need more videos of, um, of someone that say, oh, you know, like I can take someone's voice, someone's face and make them say whatever I want and, and use that to, to create more and more misinformation. So in that case, like the defect technology is very helpful for um, 
say, acting and animation. So the movie industry has actually really loved it because now they can make editing and acting a lot easier. However, the defect also come with these harm and unless, and, and they cannot necessarily be technology stop. So unless people and platform regulate uh, and ban those, those, those act, I mean, those technology, uh, then we're going to end up in a world where you have a mixed bag. So think like, yeah, right. thoughtful, thoughtful uh, regulation is, is, is needed. That it's also, um, it's a bit, it's also complex to um, just determine the situation by a particular database because um, a lot of the issues with privacy deal with aggregation of data. So even if one company says, oh, we've anonymized the data, um, the way that people can have their identity leaked is if there is auxiliary information or data that kind of leads back to reveal their identity. So there was the famous case of the researchers who were able to correlate um, the tips and the taxi routes of celebrities based on paparazzi photos. So sometimes uh, data is unintentionally leaked or made or de-anonymized based on its aggregation. So it's it's not it's not as easy as just as just saying, oh well, if this company make sure that we protect the privacy of individuals, then we're okay because you can still aggregate data from one company and another company and that can lead to issues mm -hmm. of privacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds complicated to regulate, but that some <laughs> sort of regulation seems necessary. Um, yeah, so I, I wanted to ask you um, a little bit about through Black and AI, what type of support are you, you talked about this a little bit earlier in the interview, but what type of support are you trying to provide other people getting into the space that, that maybe you didn't feel was available to you as you were getting started? Definitely support for, uh, well, I'm in grad school right now, so definitely support in general for the path to grad school. Um, grad school itself is a grueling process, and we have an academic um, mentorship program right now that is would take place in, well, we're reviewing applica applications right now, but um, hopefully next summer. And I wished that I had that sort of guidance when I was applying to grad school. Um, but at the same time, I want to provide, or I want to be part of a process that makes that better. Um, because unfortunately, within the system of academia as it exists right now, and it's changing slowly but surely, but it tends to reward individuals who uh, already benefit from the process of being on the right path. Um, but the way that we solve the most complex problems is by having as many perspectives as possible and having a diverse and inclusive environment. And part of that means that we have to change the way we think about sourcing applicants who might be a great fit uh, for academia, not just in terms of research, but the future professors um, in industry and in academia. So that's something that I'm very passionate about. And I think that Black and AI does really well in terms of supporting and in terms of this community. And it's something that we're working to make better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can go um, in detail with like many aspects uh, because it's, it's, it's quite a deep um, uh, question. And, and there's been a lot of great development in the past three years on that. So 
that we can start with, uh, I guess I can start with like a, a few personal anecdotes. So when, I mean, I went to undergrad at MIT and perform uh, research there, but I mean, often you would tend to be, I mean, definitely in your lab, you probably be the only black person for sure. Maybe often it goes to your department. Uh, in my case, it wasn't in the department, but I was, you know, the only person in my lab. And so it can always feel like, you know, you can imagine being like at a dinner conversation and you're like there, but you're not sure if your presence matters as much. It's like, it's like you're there, but like, like you could argue if you're not there, like the thing will, will still be the same. So you often question, you know, should I be in this field? Should I not be? Are there other things which uh, are there other fields which are more appealing or and things like that. And in the case of Black and AI, it shifted my perspective from you're not just solving because usually if you stay in one field, like you would maybe do it because you like the process of solving the technical problems, right? So usually like people would say, I like this field because I like to do math or I like to, you know, work on these kind of applications. But often if you're working on like really long-term subject, especially in research, it could be like five, 10 years away. The motivation can be, you know, and, and like you encounter challenge, it could be, you know, it could really affect you. But when uh, one of the big shift was that now it became almost like a, I mean, almost like social pressure because you are, you are there, you have a community, people know you, you part of your identity relies on that. So from that point, uh, it goes from, you know, I'm at the dinner table, whether or not I'm there, you know, it's like, whatever. But now it's like, I mean, this really engaging conversation uh, in his house and like even, and, and you know, it's like, oh man, like, it's like, I have to leave, but like, oh, I want to leave. But it's like, no, I can't. Like, it's, it's so great. Like, and I knew people coming and they want to benefit from my experience, from my perspective. So by doing that, it already um, works on the issue of attrition, right? Where like it's, it's, it creates an environment where people feel, wow, I really belong here. I can make a voice, I can make my voice heard. And there are role models which are also accessible. And those people in power, they actually pay attention to what I have to say. They help me and they can even unlock a lot of opportunities. So that's kind of the, one of the starting points is that because there is a really like high social nature to science. And so if you feel like your collaborators are really your friends, it makes a big difference because you're able to more freely suggest ideas and more freely question ideas. And so, I mean, as an anecdote actually, um, in my membership in Black and AI, I've been able to, in the last three years, work on five papers, four are peer-reviewed, one are, uh, is currently in review, and that has actually happened out of school, right? That would not have happened w without this community, because you just don't hear, uh, because I work in industry, people in industry who work on academic papers uh, like that. That just would not have happened if I didn't have a network of people you know, I would go to the conference, there's a really interesting conversation, we have common interest, then we take it through online collaboration. So that's just like one concrete example. Uh, the second one is visibility of the work. So through the workshop, uh, we enable the work that people do to have visibility and actually the best workshop submissions, uh, they have a, a place at like this podcast called This Week in Machine Learning and AI. So the best work uh, out of the community has visibility in terms of workshop. On our social media, we have around uh, 20, 24,000 followers on Twitter, including really leading academics, like, you know, head of 
AI at Google, uh, at Stanford, MIT professor, people at HCU, like we media, like everything. So it means that even if you're a person on Twitter with like 200, 300 followers and that you're on our radar, if you submit your work, we will retweet and get, you will get impression from 23,000 people. Uh, so that visibility, uh, and what's important because as I told you, right, like let's, stay, let's take the example of a person that's uh, not in, the, in like an university department with a lot of press. Uh, that person, when they would do their work, will be able to retweet that to a really big audience of people and give visibility to that, to that work. And so that's like a, like a third and important one. And so when you start having this feedback cycle of, oh, I know that my work now can get visibility, it changed the, it, it really changed you know, the mindset. And, and in addition, actually, due to the success that we've had, uh, Black and I has garnered a lot of support and funding. And there are like even more ambitious programs that are we looking into uh, some of the things in the work include supporting uh, entrepreneurs from the communities because, for example, a lot of actually even investors have approached us and say, hey, you know, we've seen amazing work coming out of the Black and I community and we are interested in, in, in figuring out how we can now make introduction between people from your community and, and our fund. So it means, again, that visibility and those barriers to access to, to these powerful people uh, can be worked on and now we, if we have a partnership with multiple firms then we, we could say yeah like you know yeah you should talk to that to that person so those four things over time they really mm -hmm. like make they really contribute to like powerful presence and um and and, and they all reinforce each other and and those are all of the four things which have been achieved over the last few years and and, and assuming that the momentum continues uh, you know, we're really talking about uh, unlocking all of this, uh, all of this potential and, and changing. Uh, and, and like, it's, it's like we're really constructing this environment in a way that fits the community. And so it's like, you're not just now trying to reform like any institution or advocate within any institution. You're really creating almost like an alternative environment that's, that's more, uh, that's by design say, okay, how do we support a young person in that country that, because we actually have members of, from 40 countries, not just the US, like literally 40 countries. How do we support someone that's in Brazil, they have taken three Coursera machine learning class, they need a collaborator, they need maybe a little bit of like, of, of grant money to work on a project with someone from the community. Like that's the kind of design question that, that we have. And as, uh, be and because we, we know the profiles, we can really say, okay, this is someone that would have typically been off the, uh, off the radar for many of these institutions, but we don't even just advocate within these institutions and say, oh, like we know you and we're gonna create a program that targets people like you. And, and those things are really uh, game changing. That's very cool. I, I saw online that uh, Black and AI has uncovered some racist algorithms and things like that. Is that work that, that some of your members have done like to sort of analyze and discover some of these things or has that been mostly done by your founder? Um, could you like talk a little bit about some of the, the findings that um, Black and AI has had? So there's definitely been work throughout the organization, not just, but I think that the part of the advocacy has came out of the founders 
Um, and it has continued, or basically people have kind of been um, inspired by the work of persons like Troy Bellowimi, Radit Abebe, and Timna Kabru. And uh, so we've seen a lot of research. For example, we have the upcoming Blockchain AI uh, at NeurIPS workshop, where persons have done work highlighting things like inequity in healthcare. Uh, so we've seen during COVID that there is unfortunately inequity in terms of the amount of care that certain communities have obtained versus others. And so um, those kinds of workshops kind of bring a forum for persons within those communities to talk about this work and talk about the research that they've done. So we've had uh, research in that, um, in that perspective and um, generally a computer version as well. That's another one. And um, a next, another one that's people are interested in is FATE, which is fairness, accountability, transparency, and ethics. So we've seen things like um, text generation or uh, issues of um, bias in text or, uh, or even impact or research being done in African countries and the different languages that are used because if because it's not the field itself is not very rep representative right now we're seeing a dearth of attention being paid to non-eurocentric languages and so having more black researchers by definition is bringing more research in the forefront of um low or basically uh issues that that primary academics in westernized countries may not consider yeah and actually to add to that i think in that case um i think the, the one of the best way to to look at it is that this um i mean this section of ai i mean it, it's not the only work that the community does but like because but we well placed because uh we often live at, from our lived experience that's where like what a lot of the lived experience of the members suggest or nudge them uh, towards, I think it's actually best to think of it as a field, really, because what is a field? It's like a field is a bunch of people who say these questions are worthy of asking. We're going to work on them and build on top of each other's work. And so seen from that lens, um, like you, you, I would say a lot of the Black AI members have actually led uh, this subfield of AI and build on top of each other's work. And it goes from someone finding something as an anecdote to, oh, wow, this, this happens here, this happens here too, this happens here too. And suddenly you have a bunch of people building on, on each other's work and, and like mentoring other people to also ask uh, these, this question. And so now like you'd say, I mean, like, I don't have a name exactly for the field, but like this field that centers around the question of, of power and representation in the data set and, and their use case, it's becoming a subfield of AI that, Black AI members are really uh, thriving in, and and the other one, the anecdote actually on the on the African languages. Uh, so there's this paper called the, the Masakane paper that called about uh, participatory approach. This paper has 50 authors from the African continent. It was uh, accepted at like one of the top uh, NLP conference uh, earlier this year. But actually, as a result of that work, there's been an organization called the Lacuna Fund that has uh, decided to give out grants to promote the creation of data sets on non-English uh, languages because um, that, that, that is something that, that's needed 
Uh, if we talk about AI, cannot just talk English, although most of the internet data is in English, but we we also like you know have to to think about that, and and so it went from you can imagine one person being in, in one country say oh there is no data about this specific language to fifty people finding each other doing work that gets publicized in a in a conference organization like the Rockefeller Foundation the Lacuna Fund they see that and say hey this is actually an area that fits one of the goals that we want we're gonna make a call for proposal for that to happen. And now suddenly you have these 50 people that have led this out, that have you know led this work that say oh now you can be supported and and create this this field and 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 that's that that part is really important because uh, it creates agency and and it really brings the value of having other people because it's not just uh, other question I mean it's not just that they're gonna change what is done they're gonna really change the type of question which are asked and 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 like that part is important. Because in, in terms of um, like that, that 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 anecdote is, is like is, is really illustrative of like the the value of, of different lived experience and how the visibility of all of this work gets promoted and there is a kind of feedback reaction with other institutions which are also thinking about how to empower uh, members of, of of other groups and and I think like one of the questions that could be asked is like you know why is that needed I mean if if people come from countries where um, there there isn't a high uh, like fraction of the G the GDP that's allocated to research, like it creates this these these models, these other more global models of funding and and, and, and doing research, really enable to uh, take those lived experience as well and and infuse them in in the in the design of of AI because. If we really want to create this technology that that enable all of the world to to do X Y Z, uh, it's important to 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 think about those lived experiences as well. So that's just like a more in depth example of um, of of how in in that case those subfields are created and propelled, but they would not have otherwise happened if people hadn't found themselves and the capital wasn't there. And so it's it's one of um, of like agency agency as well. Uh, a question I just would I'll direct to you, Crystal, is um, it sounds like with Black and AI, you're able to really take someone who's already taken some initiative in getting into the field and like really propel them. Uh, but you both have talked about this issue, too, of of just like a lack of feeling of belonging. Like, is this for me because of the lack of representation? Do you also have some initiatives to just try to um, broaden, like make people feel more welcomed into um, the field of AI? Um, yes, absolutely. So um, there's a, I go to a social on Tuesdays at the University of, well, it's the person who's in charge is a professor at the University of Michigan, um, Dr. Chad Jenkins. But one of the things that he says is that the biggest hurdle that black students face in grad school is isolation. And um, so a lot of the struggle and difficulty and feeling of, of uh, not belonging comes from that feeling of isolation. And so Black and AI has, by the different things that they've done, has created this space where people can meet each other. And there's kind of an act of self-care that happens when you find other people like you and they remind you that you do belong um, and you find those spaces. And so we have created through Black and AI opportunities for 
persons to not just find these spaces and interact with other persons like themselves, but also to bring that feeling of belonging and lead their own uh, initiatives and communities within the spaces that they work and live. And so we've done some of these things by having reading groups, for example. Um, we had one that was on causal inference and we're having one on deep learning apparently in early 2020. Um, another thing that we've, we had for, was it for ACL or ICML? It's just another uh, machine learning have, conference. I think there was a social at ICML. Yeah, I think there was a social at ICML, yeah. Well, we had, it was really cool because we, we discussed the decolonial AI paper, which was a massive hit this year, produced by two of our Black and AI members. And um, it was, which came out of DeepMind, but it was also, so we discussed decolonial AI and what it means to us in a setting that included about 30 of our members. And we also played music. Um, you know, some people had poetry, some people spoke about artwork. And so part of it is not just creating a community to thrive, but engaging in self-care, because that is, I think, an in incredible part of um, engaging in that pipeline that leads to a long career with it for Black students and Black faculty and Black industry practitioners in AI. Yeah, that sounds pretty... Um... That sounds pretty amazing. It sounds like from the two what you what the two of you have said, it's done a lot for you individually as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and lastly, I just wanted to ask if um, how listeners of this podcast can support uh, the work that you guys are doing. Yeah, at Black and AI. <laughs> so yeah, there's a um, depending on the level of of involvement, uh, the. I would say the minimum is you can follow uh, the work on social media. So on, at Twitter, we had at black underscore in underscore AI. On Facebook, it's the, you can find the page. Um, if you want to go a step ahead, you can find our website, blacknai.org, and, and donate. And then if you are in a position of power in a university, corporation that you can make a good case of why you can be a member of the community on the website. You can also apply to join. And, and we've seen, you know, we've seen all sorts of people uh, apply, be it recruiters that want to promote opportunities, faculty members that want to also promote opportunities to entrepreneurs that want to, 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 to support the work that the community does to investors that want to uh, diversify their portfolio. So all of those things, depending on, on the level of, of involvement, uh, there's room. So to repeat, you can follow us on social media, you can uh, donate, uh, and you can also uh, join the community as an ally if you are in a position to, to help on, on any of those points. Great, thank you. And do you have any, anything that either of you would like to add before we wrap up the interview? Maybe like favorite, co favorite COVID hobby? <laughs> Oh, I took an improv class last night. Really? That was actually based in San Francisco. But um but I um and I've also been engaged in a lot of reading groups. So I think that it's important during this time to remember that there are a lot of local bookstores that are um really suffering and businesses in general, local businesses. And so I joined a reading group as well that's uh talking about unsettler 
um, colonies or just different topics. And so it's one way that I've been able to find community during COVID, um, supporting local reading groups and doing things like community theater, even though it's digitally. So I think that um, keeping safe and helping support communities locally is really important. And that's part of why I'm engaged in Black and AI because I see it as part of my local and broader community. One other thing I do is uh, striving to walk around 30 minutes a day, uh, like every day of the week to, um, because I think like for the first few months, it was around, you know, like be safe, be safe. But like, you have to also look into how you are being safe home by, by like saying, okay, you know, am I like, it's like, I don't want to have other underlying health issues if like I'm home all the time. Right. So trying to get a bit more exercise, uh, like and, and striving for like 30 minutes uh, of work a day is, is something that, that I've been doing. And it's, it's kind of nice because like it's like they are definitely, I mean, I'm based in Boston right now. And it's like, there are definitely places of the city that I, have, I did not see uh, before. So, yeah. Yeah. Physical and mental health is important too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I'm very impressed with you doing an improv, improv class. Improv to me sounds like it's like one of my worst fears, I think, just being put <laughs> on the spot that way. But I'm sure it would be fun once you get over that. Um, but yeah, thank you both so much for joining me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and I think the work you're doing is so important. I think artificial intelligence is also really fascinating and fun to hear about some of the positive uh, things that can come out of it. Also very important for people to be aware of biases within AI and, um, and so that we can move forward, hopefully in a way that, um, that accounts for that. So thank you both so much. And um, we'll see all of you listeners in two weeks. And thank you for uh, joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you everyone for tuning into this special episode of the iPhone life podcast. We'll see you again in two weeks and thanks for listening. Thanks everyone. We hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>